Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To John 21. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to finish the Gospel of John. So next week will be the last sermon that we... We've been here about almost two years in John, and we'll move on to something different after that. When I was in high school, I was a sophomore in high school. After my sophomore year, we went on a mission trip to Telluride, Colorado in the mountains, and we did vacation Bible school to help a church planter. And it was the very last night of our time together as a youth group, and I was in the sanctuary of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. And as a 16-year-old high school student, that was the very first time that I sensed the Lord calling me into the ministry. The overwhelming sense of God's presence in my life that I was to go into pastoral ministry. Two years later, after I graduated from high school, our youth group went to Glorietta. We talked about that before. It's a, it's a youth camp down in New Mexico. And so we went to Glorietta, New Mexico, and there's a boulder there that's a very sacred boulder to me because I, I went and I, many times I've gone back to that camp and I've prayed on that boulder. And actually, back in 2010, when we took our youth there, I took my son Aiden to that boulder and said, this is the place where God confirmed his call on my life the second time. And so it was the second time that God called me to the ministry and, and impacted me in that moment on that boulder at Glorietta, New Mexico. Then, as a sophomore in college, we went back to Glorietta for student week, and God got my attention a third time and said, you are going to go into pastoral ministry. And then before Dawn and I got married, I shared this calling of God upon my life, and she also shared that she sensed God was calling her into the ministry because of her desire to be in missions. She had spent a couple of summers going to Los Angeles, inner city missions, and so we knew going into marriage that we were going to serve the Lord. And so as I was in college, I got a degree in film and video production. And as I graduated from college and in the few, first few years of our, of our marriage, in a sense, I ran away from God's call upon my life to go into the ministry. I had this pie-in-the-sky idea that I would go to Hollywood and I would be a screenwriter and I would be a director and I would be in the film industry. And I was working... Part, I was working at kind of a dead-end job um, in retail. There's nothing against retail. It's just that this job was really going nowhere. I was a customer service manager, and um, I had this idea that we were going to pack up, and, and Don and I were going to move to Hollywood. And during those periods of about two years, maybe a little bit less, I was very restless. And actually, I felt like a failure. Because I knew in my heart of hearts that God had called me into the ministry. 
And yet I was not being obedient to that call upon my life. And because of that, I actually feared for a, for a few years there of actually saying yes to Jesus. I feared surrendering to him. And it wasn't until a few years later I was sitting in church and my dad was preaching a message. He was my pastor. And I don't even remember what the text was. I don't remember what the, what the sermon was about. All I remember was about being totally obedient to the Lord. And I can tell you, I've never been under such strong conviction in a worship service in my entire life. During that closing prayer, it was as if the Holy Spirit was coming as a weight upon me, bringing strong conviction to my heart that I had been disobedient to the Lord. And so as we're driving home, I began to, to weep incessantly and I turned to Dawn and I start confessing sin and start telling her we've been disobedient. I've been disobedient. Not we've been disobedient. I've been disobedient. Um, I've not followed the Lord's leading. And she was very gracious and um, she, she supported me in that. But for two years there, I felt like a failure. I felt like I had let God down. That somehow I had disappointed God. I felt like I had no real purpose. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had those seasons in life when you felt like a failure? Don't raise your hand, please. Have you ever felt like a failure? Have you ever felt like you let God down. How do we respond in times of failure? I think there's many unhealthy ways we can respond in times of failure. One unhealthy way is being overcome with guilt. You just pile guilt upon guilt and you become self-loathing and self-hating and you turn inward upon yourself and you begin to hate yourself because I'm such a failure and you begin to, to bring condemnation upon yourself. That's one unhealthy way you deal with failure. Another unhealthy way you deal with failure is you overcompensate and you say, you know what, I'm never going to fail again. So you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you try hard and you give it all you've got in your own power and strength to make sure that you never, ever fail again. Another way to deal with failure is sometimes you just hide it. You suppress the feelings. You just try to run away from it. You don't face it. You don't deal with it. You just push it away. Another unhealthy way of dealing with failure is saying, you know what? Once a failure, always a failure. I might as well not even try anymore. I might as well not even seek to face the Lord. I might as well just continue in this life of sin, this life of failure, because that's what I'm going to be. That's what I've always been. There is no hope for me. I'm a failure. So the question becomes, how do you and I respond to failure? But let me ask you a more important question. How does Jesus respond to you in your times of failure? How does our Lord respond to us in times of failure, in times of weakness, in times of inadequacy? Does Jesus say, you're on your own. Hey, good luck with that. I hope it works out well for you. Does he abandon us? Obviously not. As we move into the last chapter of John's gospel, we see Jesus appear one more time to his disciples. And this event shows how he meets them in a time of failure, in a time of weakness. 
in a time of inadequacy. So let's read together John chapter 21. This is the epilogue to the book, and I'm so thankful it's here. The last chapter of John should give all of us encouragement who have ever failed or felt weak or felt inadequate. Let's begin in verse 1. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here's the main point of this passage. Jesus graciously meets your absolute inadequacy with his absolute sufficiency. Jesus graciously meets your absolute inadequacy, absolute insufficiency, absolute weakness, absolute insufficiency with his absolute sufficiency, his absolute power, his absolute resources. Now, As we've gone into John chapter 21, the scene has shifted. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They are by the Sea of Tiberias, which is actually called the Sea of Galilee. So they're not hiding out behind locked doors anymore. You remember Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene. Jesus had appeared to them. Jesus had appeared to them with Thomas. You had those appearances. Last week, Thomas made that powerful confession, My Lord and my God. And now they're in Galilee, which is home for these guys. This is where these guys grew up, on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus first called them to be his disciples, on the Sea of Galilee. This is where they grew up as fishermen. Now, why did they go to Galilee? Well, if you go back and read Mark and you go back and read Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells them to go to Galilee and to wait for him there. So that's why they're there. 
But I want you to think about the scene here. There are two parallel scenes in the Bible. The, the scene where Jesus first calls the disciples and the scene right here at the end of John, right before Jesus goes back up to heaven. So I want you to think about John's account here in John chapter 21. And I want you just to briefly with me turn to Luke chapter 5. Just turn briefly with me to Luke chapter 5 because Luke chapter 5 gives us the first time these disciples meet Jesus. The first time they're introduced to the Lord. And it's on the same sea, the Sea of Galilee. It's the same situation. They're out on the boat. It's the same situation. They're not catching any fish. So how does Jesus introduce himself to Peter, James, and John and the other disciples who grew up on this sea fishing? Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennaraset, that's the, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and who all were, in, were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching fish. You will be a fisher of men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the first time these disciples meet Jesus. And where are they? On the Sea of Galilee. And what's the problem? They've been toiling all night and don't catch any fish. What does Jesus say to them? Put your nets in the water. What happens? They get so many fish they begin to sink. And Peter is freaked out because he's in the presence of a holy, of a holy Christ. And he confesses, I'm unworthy. And, and Jesus says to them, men, you're not going to be catching fish anymore. You're going to be catching men. And then verse 11 tells us everything we need to know. They left everything to follow Jesus. They became his disciples. This is the first time Jesus meets these guys on the Sea of Galilee on a fishing expedition where they're not catching any fish. Now fast forward three years later. John chapter 21. It's the same sea. But this time... These men had been with Jesus for three years. And they'd seen him rise from the dead. They'd seen the scars in his hands and the scars in his feet and the scar on his side. And they, they had, they'd heard those words, peace be to you. And they were filled with joy. And they'd followed his command to go to Galilee. And they're not really sure when he's going to appear again because Jesus kind of did that, didn't he? He'd just show up and they weren't expecting him. He, he would surprise them. And so all they know is we need to go to Galilee and we need to wait for Jesus. And so as they're waiting for Jesus, they got to eat. They can't just sit by idly. They decide to go fishery, fishing. And so 
they go fishing, and it's probably very refreshing to be back in Galilee. They're away from Roman hostility in Jerusalem. They're not hiding behind locked doors. They they have the, the sounds of the sea. It's comfortable. It's home. It's relaxing. Once a fisherman, always a fisherman. They'd grown up on this sea. They knew the tricks of the trade. They knew the best places to cast their nets. They knew how to row their oars quietly so that they won't disturb the fish. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands, these fishermen. And what do they do? Verse 3 tells us everything we need to know. They went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. All night, on the sea, toiling and casting their nets and trying this place and trying that and getting sweaty and getting tired and getting frustrated. And they caught nothing. Nothing. And I'm sure it was very frustrating for these men because these men knew fishing. But they failed. They caught nothing. They came up short. They were inadequate. They spent all night in their own strength and their own power trying to catch fish and they got nothing. Now here's something we need to understand. Sometimes... God will providentially ordain failure and trials and inadequacies and weaknesses in your life to show you more of His grace and His power. We don't like to hear that message. But God will sometimes providentially ordain failures in your life to show you more of His grace and His power. I mean, you don't have to read the story of Job to figure this out. What happened to Job? Okay, Job lost everything. The first two chapters of the book, he loses his children, he loses his livestock, he loses his house, and then basically he gets boils and sores all over him. And what does his loving wife say? Job, you need to just cuss God out and commit suicide. Great wife, huh? Just curse God and die, Job. And what does Job say to his wife in Job 2.10? He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, we need to be careful with that word evil because in the Hebrew, the word evil can mean calamity. It can mean disaster. It can mean heartache. Really what Job's saying is, listen, we know that we receive good things from God and we also receive bad things from God. God is sovereign over our lives and God will ordain some things to happen in our lives that are setbacks, our failures, our weaknesses, our heartaches, our calamities. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made the day of prosperity, but he's also made the day of adversity. God is in charge of both. And so sometimes God will ordain you to go through failure, heartache, trials, weaknesses, and inadequacies so that he can show more of his power and grace to you in those times of failure and weaknesses. And so these men, 
have spent all night and they are failures. They do not catch any fish. And Jesus is on the shore a thousand yards away. And what does he yell out to them? Hey, guys, have you caught any fish? Now, if you're a disciple, what are you thinking at this point? Who's this upstart on the shore making fun of us for not catching fish? Who does he think he is? The last thing we want to hear is a know-it-all that's going to tell us how to fish. And by the way, he's a thousand yards away. What does he know? Hey, guys, did you catch any fish? The way it's worded in the Greek is it almost lends itself for the answer to be no. And what do the disciples say? No. And yet, ironically, what does Jesus ask them to do? Hey, cast your net on the right side. Look at verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, again, he's, he's, a, thousand, he's a hundred yards away. What did this guy on the shore know that they didn't know? And what are they probably thinking to themselves? We've tried everything. And we've been out here all night. We've been toiling. We're sweaty. We're tired. We're frustrated. Maybe once. Maybe just this one time we'll get lucky. We'll, we'll listen to this guy. He may not know what he's talking about, but let's just try it. So what do they do? They take the advice of the guy. They don't even know who it is. A hundred yards away. And they cast their nets into the sea. And what happens? Immediately, immediately, thoughts of Luke chapter 5 begin to fill their heads. What, what happens? They have a huge catch of fish. Now, John, the disciple, is a little bit more perceptive than Peter. John's the thinker. Peter's the one that acts and puts his foot in his mouth. What does John say? John perceives, look at verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Remember Thomas's confession last week? My Lord and my God. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. It's the Lord on the seashore. And what does Peter do? <laughs> when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. I picture Peter not even diving but doing a cannonball. I mean, I just picture Peter like, I don't even care. I'm just going to go. I'm going to jump. And he starts doing the, you know, he starts swimming a hundred yards to shore. He does not care if he looks like an idiot in front of the other disciples. He doesn't care if all social, um, um, you know, expressions of, of what's decent. He doesn't care. All he wants to do is to get to Jesus. That's all Peter wants. There is passion in Peter. You can fault Peter for a lot of things, but one thing you can't fault Peter for is his passion. Peter doesn't care as long as he gets to Jesus. Would that there would be more Peters in the church. You know, I would much rather take a young, rough around the edges, maybe not a polished, doesn't have all their theological ducks in a row, passionate person for Jesus than a Christian who's old and stale and doesn't take risks and is kind of stuck in their Christianity. I would much rather have a person with passion than someone who's gotten comfortable with their relationship with Christ. And Peter's passionate. It's the Lord. I'm not going to wait 
to, to row to shore. I'm just going to do the cannonball jump in, and I'm going to swim to shore. I don't care about these other guys. There's Jesus. That's where I want to be. And it reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 84. Psalm 84, 1 through 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy for the living God. My soul longs for you, Jesus. My heart longs for you. I'm going to jump out of the boat and I'm going to swim to you. Because Psalm 84.10 says this at the end of the psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. I don't care where you are, Jesus. I don't care how crazy this looks. All I want is to be with you. So I'm going to jump out of the boat in passion and I'm going to swim a hundred yards to you. And we know the rest of the account, right? The rest of the disciples drag the fish to the shore. How do we know the story's true? These are fishermen. Did you notice a detail in the story? How many fish were there? 153. If you're a fisherman, don't you care about numbers? Oh, we had a, we, we had a big cut, catch of fish. No, we know exactly how many we caught. We caught 153. Now, there's some people that look at the symbolism of 153 and try to make some symbolism out of it. I don't really care about that. All I know is these fishermen knew fishing, and they were making sure that they counted all of the fish. And Jesus is there waiting for them. He's got a charcoal fire. We're going to look at that next week, the significance of a charcoal fire. Jesus is there, and he serves them breakfast. And verse 13 is the key to understanding this entire episode. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Jesus serves these guys breakfast. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. You guys are failures. As a matter of fact, I'm the Lord. You should be serving me breakfast. You cowards, you failures, you guys that think you can do stuff on your own strength. Does Jesus do that? No, he looks at these guys and says, man, I know you're failures. I know you've been been fishing all night. I know you've caught nothing. Let me cook you breakfast. Let me serve you. And when Jesus serves them breakfast, it's a way for Jesus to encourage them. It's a way for Jesus to empower them. It's a way for Jesus to meet their needs. And so in that moment, they had caught nothing. Jesus provides the fish and feeds them breakfast. You see, this story illustrates for us their absolute inadequacy and powerlessness to do anything without Jesus. What had Jesus taught them earlier, just a few days earlier, when they were in the garden right before he went to the Father to pray? All of those great vines around them, probably in the Garden of Gethsemane, John fifteen five. what did he say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We hear those words, don't we? But what is our temptation? And let me talk to men here. Men, what is our temptation? And women, you can, you can listen in on this. But men, what's our temptation? We tend to trust in ourselves. We tend to put all stock in ourselves. 
we tend to be very, very sufficient, very prideful. We don't need any help. We can handle it. We're men. And I'm sure, women, you feel that way too at times. I think for men, sometimes we can become very self-sufficient, very prideful. I can handle this. Thank you very much. But Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, lest anyone think he stands, take heed lest he fall. Augustine was the first one to kind of coin this term in Latin. Incurvitus on se. Incurvitus on se. It means to be curved in upon yourself. Martin Luther took that same idea and he talked about there's this propensity of people to curve in, to bend inward and look upon ourselves. What do I have within me? What strength do I have within me? How am I self-sufficient? We look inward at ourselves and we should not be turning inward on ourselves, but the gospel says, turn outward in faith and look to Jesus. But what are we tempted to do as people, especially men? We are very tempted to curve in on ourselves and say, look at my resources, look at my power, look at what I can do in my own strength. I'm turning in on myself. And you know what happened? Self-sufficiency prevented these men from fruitfulness. What had Jesus called them to do back at the very first? You will be fishers of men. You will be fishers of men. Now, they had not caught any physical fish. But what's the greater object lesson? Men, if you're going to go out and you're going to spread the gospel and you're going to share the gospel and you're going to make disciples of all the nations and you're going to preach in my name and you're going to go to the nations, don't you dare go out there in your own strength because you will fail. You can't catch fish on your own. What makes you think you can catch men on your own? Without me, you can do nothing. What keeps us humble? What keeps us dependent? Failure. Failure keeps you humble. Weaknesses keep you humble. Inadequacies keep you humble. Failure shows you your ultimate need to not curve inward and rely upon yourself, but to look outward to the grace of Jesus Christ. Malcolm Muggeridge has said this. It stuck with me all week. It's an interesting statement. He said, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Christianity is the sanctification of failure. God making good out of your failure. Do you see failure? Do you see setbacks? Do you see times of trial and struggle and weakness? Do you see those as God's grace to you to show His power and His strength in you. What did Jesus also say in John 15, 1 through 2? I am the vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Do you know that pruning gets you ready for more faithfulness? Nobody likes to be pruned. 
failure is God's way of pruning you, of getting you ready for more faithfulness, to getting ready for more fruitfulness. God may be pruning you. Another way of saying is that God may be disciplining you. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. When you're disciplined, it provides an opportunity for God to show forth fruit in your life. You remember Paul? Paul went to what, I don't know the whole, don't tell me to explain it, but somehow Paul got to go up to heaven and see some amazing visions. And God would not let him talk about it. God would not let him boast about it. And here's what Paul says about that in in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what this thorn is. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus, take away this struggle. Take away this thorn. Take away this weakness. Take away this inadequacy. Please take it away. And what does Jesus say? I will not take it away. Because if I take it away, that means you'll begin to rely upon yourself and you will become conceited. I'm going to leave it there so that you will be weak because it's in your weakness that I shine the greatest. And if we're going to boast, let us boast that we're weak because it's when we're weak, Christ is strong. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What are we tempted to depend upon, to trust in, to boast in? We could come up with a great list here this morning. Ourselves, money, power. You know, we're tempted to say things like this. I can handle it. I'm tough. I can handle it. I don't need help. Or maybe we're tempted to say, you know what? I got money in the bank. I'm sitting pretty good right now. I've got a good 401k. I I got a good job. I've got money. I'm okay. Or maybe you say, you know what, if we just did this program, if we just put all our stock in this curriculum and this program, then, Pastor Sean, our church would grow by leaps and bounds if we just did the latest and greatest program. Or some of you may say, you know what, as long as Pastor Sean's here to help me during my times of trouble, I'll be okay, I can always go to him. Or whoever it is you go to, I will just trust in that other person. Or maybe you say something like, you know what, I was successful in the past. It worked out in the past for me. It's bound to work out now or maybe you'll say something like you know what i'm talented i know this like the back of my hand this is no big deal what did the disciples probably say when they were out on that sea of galilee we know this sea like the back of our hand we've been fishing in this place since we were four years old we know how to catch fish we know what we're doing we are competent 
capable, self-sufficient fisherman who can catch fish. We've been doing it our entire life. But they caught nothing to show them that without Jesus, they are powerless, they are weak, they are inadequate. And Jesus met their needs and he fed them. And he empowered them as an act of love. So we've seen four resurrection appearances of Jesus post-resurrection. The first was to Mary Magdalene. And what was the point to tell Mary? There's a new relationship. We now relate to God as our Father. Okay, the second time Jesus appears to the apostles behind closed doors without Thomas, the purpose of that is you're being sent out on mission. You're being sent out on mission. Third time, this time to Thomas. What's the point of that? That great confession that if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and your God, you will have life in his name. What's the fourth appearance for? The fourth appearance is to show these men that they can do nothing without Jesus. They need his strength. They need his power. They need his sufficiency. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. I want you to see some symbolism that John throws in here. The failure to catch fish happened at night. They've been working all night. The failure happened at night. But I want you to notice what John says. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. It was a new morning. It was a new day. See, here's the beauty of God's grace. You may be going through a very dark night of the soul, a very hard time, failure after failure, and you feel like you're in the dark but there's always a new day. There's joy in the morning. The sun breaks and Jesus stands on the shore. His mercies are new every morning. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Lamentations three twenty-two through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus graciously meets your inadequacy with His sufficiency. And let me give you some encouragement this morning. If you're in that dark night, just remember There's a new morning, 
And Jesus stands on the shore ready to receive you and love you and encourage you on a new day. Because we are powerless, we are hopeless, we are helpless. And he meets us right where we are to encourage us. Hope comes in the morning. Jesus stands on the seashore ready to receive you. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And maybe you have not thanked the Lord for failure. Maybe you have not thanked the Lord for weakness and inadequacy because it's in those times that He shows you His grace, His power, His sufficiency. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, would you spend a few moments in prayer before your Lord this morning? Every single one of us in this room could probably give testimony of a time of failure, a time of weakness. And Lord, we're thankful for those times because it reminds us of your power. And Lord, we are so tempted to curve in on ourselves and try to fix things in our own power. We try to trust in our own resources, to trust in our own abilities. And in weakness is where your power shines the greatest. So Lord, I'm thankful for this account that these men failed. These men were inadequate to show us that we will fail, we will be inadequate. But Jesus, you stand on the seashore on that new morning ready to serve us and to feed us and to encourage us and to empower us for a new day. So I thank you for your grace. Lord, if there is anybody in this room that is going through a time of darkness, a time of failure, a time of weakness, a time of inadequacy, Would you meet them right in the middle of that need? And would they leave this place encouraged that it's there, in the pain, in the weakness, that you shine the brightest, that you show your power and your glory the greatest, and that people would leave this place encouraged today because of your love for them, Jesus. Keep us humble. Keep us dependent. Keep us repentant. That we might not trust in ourselves or boast in ourselves, but we would trust fully in you. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting us with your absolute sufficiency. When we are weak, when we are failures, when we are struggling. We love you, we honor you. Now as we take the supper, your supper, 
would it be a reminder again that we are being served by you, Lord, through your death, burial, and resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.